wonderful to see you all. <clears throat> I feel like just sitting here and letting the two hours be kind of just hanging out together. But that's not what you came for. <laughs> so, um, and I'm excited about these series um, because it deals with a question that um, I have long uh, thought about and uh, tried to investigate. So the title of this series, formal title, is called The Essential Elements of Formless Practice. <clears throat> the informal title is The Three-Legged Stool. So tonight what I'm going to do is sort of give you um, a brushstroke approach to what the other three talks are going to be about and then go into much more depth uh, on each of the legs of the three-legged stool uh, the next three weeks together. <coughs> and where this practice uh, or this talk, series of talks has come from was uh, a whole series of frustrating events in my own practice where um, I would go to a retreat and uh, feel very connected and into the meditation while I was on retreat, then I would hear a closing talk at the end of the retreat telling me how to carry the retreat uh, into my daily life and getting into my daily life and having it completely disappear within a relatively short period of time. Thinking I wasn't trying hard enough blaming myself for uh, some lack of sincerity and therefore going back into retreat to try to recapture the spirit so that I'd come home and perpetuate it after it was over. Well, that went on for 20 years. <laughs> and it... Uh, it was very frustrating, has been very frustrating because I never was uh, able to really or never felt like I was being complete in my mindfulness at home. Uh, certainly wasn't being as complete as I was on the retreat and somehow my uh, life, life experiences would uh, carry me away into different pursuits rather than the pursuit of awareness and mindfulness. So after um, almost 25 years of practice, this is the distillation of the closing talk of a retreat. And I think it's the essential ingredients that you have to have in order to take it out. Usually how it's described is okay, sit every day, sit at least two hours, they often said early on, and try to bring mindfulness into everything you do. Reaching for something, <coughs> feeling the contact and connection, the weight, the temperature, all of that sort of thing. Connecting with the sensations, the experience. And for me, just for me, 
That felt very tedious. Because I couldn't do it. My um, body uh, activity is faster than the kind of moment-to-moment uh, -moment expression of mindfulness that was often demonstrated on the course of retreats. My motor just runs on a higher idle. And so it didn't, uh, it didn't really fit my own characteristics, my own temperament. But I dare say it probably didn't fit a lot of people. Because it can get, um, it feels like hard labor, doesn't it? I mean, you've all done that. It feels like you're putting on an extra burden on your life. For most of us, many of us. And we look around and we can't figure out why we're doing it half the time. We've somehow connected with something resonated with us when we were on retreat and we try to carry that resonance home but we lose the perspective from which that resonance came naturally to us when we were on retreat when we're out and so having lost the view the relationship with life the intimacy with life the practice falls away as well and so you keep trying to come back to the moment and uh, it's enormously effortful. It feels like you're carrying this weight of responsibility and to be mindful and most of the time it's not obvious why we're doing it. So this is where these talks come from. And the spirit is the spirit of inviting a whole different framework into our minds. That framework is a stool. A stool has three legs and they're essential elements of practice. Essential elements. If you want to make your life work spiritually, these elements have to be there. Now once the stool is on the ground, you've got to sit on it doesn't work unless you're seated. So even though I will go through these weeks together, the sitting on it is the um, homework, which will be put out for you every week and which you will have to practice and, and work with. When I was uh, in Thailand, uh, I had a teacher named Ajahn Buddhadasa. Ajahn Buddhadasa was a very revered, revered um, meditation teacher, but he was a kind of a, a crusty old fellow, and he would sit out in front of his, uh, his uh, little hut and just sort of hang out there all day long. And he would kind of make fun of people who were uh, putting a lot of effort into samadhi or samadhi being concentration or, or practice. And 
because that's what I was doing at the time, I would sometimes go uh, speak with him. And he would say things like, um, oh, just let develop natural samadhi. Develop natural mindfulness. Just connect with what you love and develop natural samadhi. I thought, well, that's interesting, but it did, certainly didn't resonate with me. I was into the effort. I was into the forced labor. Right? <laughs> so part of this series of talks is dedicated to that man because it's really around that theme that this practice developed for me. So let's get right to the point. What are those three legs? <laughs> Give me that stool. <laughs> so what are those three legs? Tonight we'll just talk about each one briefly and then entertain um, a discussion with you about them. And then, as I mentioned, the previous, in the next talks, we'll, um, we'll develop the themes a little more richly. Okay. So what is essential for the practice of mindfulness, of being awake, of being aware in our lives? The first leg. The teaching. That's <laughs> hmm. nice to hear when you work in hospice care all week long. One is the correct view, the correct perception of life. Now the view can be thought of as sort of the tapestry or the environment from which the other things, the other legs uh, arise. The view is how we see the world, how we perceive ourselves in relationship to other things. And it's very interesting how subtle and tenacious views are with us. Views really define your own relationship to everything in life. Your view is one, or most of our views in this room, are one in which there is self and other. That is a view. That is a set, a ready way of believing, an assumption that you pay, place upon your experience. There's nothing within your experience that confirms that view except your moment-to-moment -moment telling yourself that that view is correct. So the first thing, the first thing we have to look at and understand is the view that we hold. Because nothing changes with the view, without, without the view changing. I mean, if I believe that this is the way things are, that you and I are separate, and that all the things in the world are separate from me, doesn't it make sense to gather and collect the things of the world? Why would I, I what, it makes sense to me. I mean, if it's a bunch of things, like it's pickup sticks. Why not collect them, bring them to you, own them, hold on to them, right? 
and that's the view we hold, a bunch of things out there that we can collect, property or money or status or prestige or whatever, things to, things to have and to own. So we'll talk about this view a little more, but let me, well, no, I think I'll go into each one separately so I hold you in suspense to what the other two are. <laughs> so let's talk about that view. Well, it's, very, it's interesting because um, the kind of work I do uh, really addresses that view head on. You see, um, in the assumption of things being outside of myself, uh, therefore my happiness is outside of myself. I'm incomplete because there's the world and there's me and I'm looking in at the world of things. So that's, a, that's the way I perceive all of you and everything in it. So then my strategy for life is trying to bring all of you into my sphere of influence, either through empowerment, manipulation, influence, buying you, or whatever, or persuasion or friendship or whatever. But I have to somehow bring you into my circle, to bring you into me, to bring you into my sphere of influence in order to make that view worthwhile, in order to make that a satisfying perspective. The problem is things die. And so the grasping at, the dissolution of, is incumbent on the grasping at. As I grasp for, there's already the dissipation, the diminishment of. And therefore, it's a little bit like trying to grab a cloud because things change and die. I was having a conversation with a real good friend of mine that I've known uh, for 45 years, was at our house yesterday. He's an American Airline pilot and he flies in um, from time to time and we have dinner with, with him. So he was uh, over at my home and uh, we were talking uh, to each other about being 50 years old and how amazing it is to be 50. I mean, it's not amazing in the, the, some kind of wondrous event, but just that you don't feel 50. You know, all of a sudden you just look at your clock, your age clock, and you are 50. And you don't really understand how you got there. I mean, I don't understand how I got there. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it age, I don't know, it's just very interesting to me that this thing grows old. He said, uh, my friend said, you know, uh, my father, I remember when my father turned 50. It's the only decade that I remember him turning, I don't remember when he turned 40, but I remember when he turned 50. And I remember thinking, you know, how old he was. <laughs> and that's, that's enough of this conversation. <laughs> but you see the dissipation, the, dis dis the dissipation itself begins to take that view away. 
begins to show that view doesn't have complete truth. Because how can, if you're going to grasp something and hold on to it, then it better be around. For it to be fulfilling, it has to be around. It has to be, it has to be permanent. But, of course, it's not. And every day when I walk into work, I walk past boards of patients' names in which the ages of the names vary from, we have a, a one-day-old child, now it's about a one-week-old child on our service, to I don't know how old, but probably well in, up in the 90s. And you're just sort of walking by the winds of circumstance as you walk down the aisle. Just the, just the blow of, of change, just the movement and winds of, of time. You know, it doesn't have any bearing on anything except the fact that it's just, I mean, you can just hear the cries of the morning and the cries of the dying and the cries of the, of the children. And just age and the whole process of change and the whole process of trans, of moving from one thing to another, of transience. You see, that's the universe calling forth another view. That's the echoes of the screams of the universe saying, you're going the wrong way. Like the conversation was with my friend. That was the conversation from some part of ourselves that know that the thing is going completely differently than the way we act in the world. And how important it is to listen to that. To give that some credence. And just to show you the power of doing nothing else but working in hospice care. I have a wonderful social work friend of mine who's uh, in hospice. She doesn't do any meditation. She's not interested really in that aspect of, uh, of transformation, but she loves and has been in hospice for a number of years. And so I said, okay, Sarah, I said, tell me what hospice has taught you. She's been in about six years. I said, okay, you've been at six years and you're an excellent clinician. What's the message of all those years? And she says, just a minute. She takes out a book. She opens the book to this page that was well-worn. And she said, the page was, uh, had some printing on it, and she read that this moment is everything. She said, that's the message of hospice. See, that's the message of another view. So when we begin to allow life to teach us, it takes us to another view. It takes us to another perspective. Without that other perspective, our practice goes nowhere. From the old perspective, all we do is reinforce that view on ourselves moment after moment. We find practices, techniques, 
spiritual teachers who reinforce whatever view we hold to be true. And because we're so attached to that perspective, we screen out all the others. And every once in a while, every once in a while, an insight penetrates that view. See, an insight is a communication from one view to another. And suddenly, whoa, things change. My God. <laughs> and so, and then that, that shakes us a little bit. And when we're on retreat, we're shaking quite a bit. And when we're off retreat, we try to consolidate the stability, forget the shakiness, and continue on in our life. We can't live with that kind of, that kind of tremor all the time. So the first thing, this is only one of the legs, <laughs> and we will talk much more about this particular leg next time. But the stool sits down, it touches earth. The first point of contact is on that view, changing our view of life, changing from a view of, of things being separate and distant and being um, being something that uh, I need for fulfillment, the object perspective, the product's perspective, that everything is something out there to gain or to achieve or to master or to accomplish. Even how we look at time. See, it gets very subtle. These views aren't just, you know, yeah, desire. It's like how we work with time in our lives how we are with each other. I don't have time right now for that. See, I have to save time. I have to, I'm wasting time. I can't do this. I'm wasting time. You see, all those are views of product. And then for a moment, we come together on retreat and we learn to listen. We learn to meet life with a different view. Meet life from the sense of process, from the sense of movement, from the sense of actually participating, contact, relationship relationship and we begin we just touch the earth for a moment instead of trying to grasp the earth as mine we just touch it and let it move from beneath our hand you see you see then we go back home and try to grab it again it's my house get off my property <laughs> <laughs> So the view has to, has to come with us. We have to keep working with that view. Okay. So first, touchdown, right? The eagle has landed. <laughs> Second leg. Now that we have the understanding, we're trying to participate in the understanding of life being a process. I mean, we talk about it sometimes as a difference between having and being. There are lots of different living with the way things are, you know. All, there, all the different, uh, there are lots of Dharma talks about that view. But now that the view has been substantiated and we're changing the way we see things, what's the attitude by which we can foster 
keep allowing that view to unfold? Well, let's see. What could be the attitude? Could, would the attitude be ambition? Well, if I were ambitious, then I'm trying to acquire and hold on. So that's not the right attitude. So we could keep working through the different attitudes until we, some, one of them resonated with that view. I'll save you from the top. <laughs> the attitude which I think both most um, accommodates that view and sustains it is the attitude of learning. So the attitude which allows the view to unfold is the attitude of learning. You see, it's not knowledge, because then I'm just retaining what I learned. It's like water through a sieve. It's just learning. It's always accessing the world in terms of the world's input upon me, so that I'm always allowing the world to affect me through learning, if I'm just open to things. So if I'm opinionated and I, I have a strong, you know, uh, bias, then I'm not going to learn. I put up a wall to learning. You see what it does? See what this does? It's very interesting. The mind gets open. You see? All of the walls come down. All of the ways that we keep each uh, ourselves from each other. And so we talk, you know, in a done a lot of talks and will do a lot of talks on looking at the ways that we put up our defenses, how we keep people out of our hearts, how we protect ourselves, because those are subtle forms of resistances to learning. And the learning has to be complete. It can't be one-directed. I can't just learn on my left side. I can't just be a liberal, <laughs> nor can I just be a conservative. I have to be open to both perspectives. I just have to listen. Listening is the key. Just think what it means to listen for a moment. I, uh, our hospice is doing a training, accredited course for first and second year medical students at the U. It's great. So we're, we're sending them through our volunteer training. They get uh, three, 24 hours of training. One of the, and we, get, we have the, some of the best people in town training these people. So they're getting, they're really getting it. So one of the uh, people that come, comes in is a very well-known hospice figure in the city. And she teaches listening skills. For three hours, these medical students learn how to listen. And at first they're, you know, touchy-feely is not, <laughs> You'd think that they, doctors would have some sense of that, but believe me, some of them do not. Some of them don't want that. <laughs> but in any case, uh, they pair up, and they're given an exercise to speak to the other person in whatever subject they'd like, and the other person is just to listen without any kind of affirmation of what they're listening or anything. No head nodding, no shaking their head, no gesturing, just bare attention. And it's amazingly powerful. One of your sub-homeworks, 
this week is to give yourself five minutes where you listen to somebody in that way. Just taking them in. Not agreeing or disagreeing. You see, that's just, there's a subtle form. There's a subtle form in which the nodding keeps the person at bay. And if you're just present with somebody, think, think what bare attention in yourself does. If you're nodding at what you see, you're agreeing with it in some way, so you're not really hearing the complete story. The agreement is a siding with the issue. And so, uh, a personal story, when I uh, was working in social work and hospice care, um, one of the patients, uh, well, not one of the patient's wives, the patient's wife, uh, I would meet with her every week when I would go over there, and uh, she was grieving, uh, anticipatory grieving, and so she was telling me about what life was going to be like when her husband died and pouring out this grief, and I would be with her in that. And then I came over, you know, after three or four sessions of that, the next week I came over, and as I sat down on the chair, I leaned forward like this, and she said, um, you know, that gesture uh, forces me to grieve. That's a, a gesture in which you are back with your pity. And I don't feel like grieving today. I'm angry at the guy for dying. And I can't actually show it to you because I was sitting in just the way I was. It, it was pretty obvious that that's what I was doing. And it really showed me how, you know, you take a certain person's, you take the person's disposition for granted in some way. And we sort of believe that that's where they're going to be coming from the next time we see them. Sort of like we see somebody and then we freeze them in that spot. And then you may be a year or two before you see them again, but you expect them to come to you just in that way. You don't allow for that them to change in some very important way. And so the, the listening from just being present, and you don't have to worry that the person won't know that you're a part of their conversation in their lives just through the listening because that wasn't the person that wasn't uh, um, the feedback that was given on this exercise the, they knew that the other person was there present for them and for our uh, just to be able to listen see in the listening you're learning you're available you're just letting it touch us we're just being affected by it. It's a tremendously powerful, well, I mean, it's Dharma. That's what we do internally. We just have to practice the same methods externally as we do internally. What are the conditions that we bring forth inside ourselves to see who we are? And it's those conditions we have to manifest with the other to allow them to be who they are. So the value and beauty of learning. I've got two legs down and another 10 minutes to go. <laughs> so we've got to go on, move on here. So that, okay, so here we've got 
the environment that we've created, the environment of the perspective that we see out of, and a way to maintain and to access that perspective through listening and learning about things, not forming our opinions about them. But there are, that's only two of the three legs. The three legs, in order for the stool to stand, stand, there must be a third leg. And that third leg is an all-important one, and I think um, very under-served um, in this particular Buddhist tradition. In Hindu tradition, it's a little better. But in the Buddhist tradition, it's not as well um, uh, it's not as well accentuated. And that uh, is um, that we connect with life uh, with our passion, following our passions of life. Because how do you get involved in all this? What, what engages you? One of the reasons that mindfulness is so difficult to bring to bear on our lives is that we really don't care about what we're doing. It doesn't make that much, it's not that, it doesn't feel that important to us. I mean, who cares if I pick up a, a skillet carefully or not? What difference does that have to make to me? What, how does that affect me or make an impact on me? So we have to find what it is in life that we care about, where our passions are, where our interests, where our natural inclination is, what we love just like Buddha Dasa, what we love, where, and then the, there will be a natural response. The natural response when you're interested in something is to attend to it. So when we pay attention to something, we're present. Where's the hard labor in that awareness? Where is the striving and the force in that? It's natural. You're aware. Your child is starting to touch the stove. Right there. You love artwork and you're painting. Your mind isn't off in Hawaii. It's painting. You're a scientist and you're doing pure research. And you're right there at the microscope or telescope. There's no drifting there. There's like total absorption. You see, there's also learning, and because there's learning, there's also the view. So through your interest, all three of these legs come into being. As a matter of fact, each one, and I'll, we'll talk about this more, but each one of those legs encompass the other two. So you can pick whatever leg you like, and the stool will stand, as long as you understand where the other th two have to come from out of it. So when I was um, a, a monk in Thailand, um, and my passion years earlier was Dharma. I mean, I heard the Dharma, and it literally, for me, was overnight, I, I have to do this. And uh, I got involved with it through Be Here Now and the little cookbooks thing at the end. And I was like, wanted to do the cooking. I didn't care about the other two. I just wanted to go right to the cookbook chapter, because I, I really wanted to understand this thing. So that took me uh, uh, through a number of years of in and out of meditation retreats and eventually to Thailand in the forest. And then my practice started feeling a little dry. 
something was missing. It just didn't, you know, and then I started thinking, well, maybe I ought to just uh, hang it up and go back home or something, or I don't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I read a book, the book, uh, Who Dies, Stephen Levine's book. And immediately, the same thing happened to me as when I first heard my first, when I first heard a Dharma talk. I want to do that. I want to do, it's like a compass. I want to do that. And I knew then what I wanted to do. So when I left the robes, it was to follow my interest, my passion. I'm sure there were monks there in the monastery who shook their heads and said, oh, he's just giving in to his ignorance. Another poor soul bites the dust of samsara. <laughs> but I knew that wasn't true for me. I knew that wasn't true. I knew I was just going to the next step. And as a matter of fact, I, disro I disrobed, took my, left the monkhood at, in Sarnath, which was where the Buddha did his first sermon, because I felt like I was stepping out into my first sermon. I was that... It resonated, and I had no idea how it was going to come to pass. I, didn't, I knew nothing about the hospice movement. I knew nothing about anything that was going on in the States back then. And then the whole universe worked in concert to that passion. I came back to uh, IMS, and who happened to be there? Ram Dass happened to be there. So I happened to have this meeting with him in which he happened to know a hospice program that happened to need a social worker. And I went down and interviewed, and they happened to give me the job. And You see? <laughs> and the whole time I was scared to death. Oh, I, you know, you're all this mind stuff. Oh, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do, and I don't have any money. <laughs> and all the winds were blowing. The winds were blowing. And I was trying to cover myself from the cold. And to, to allow the winds to blow, to allow ourselves to be touched by life. It, is it working for you now? Well, you wouldn't be here if it was completely working for you now. <laughs> Maybe it's the chair you're sitting on. Maybe you need a stool. <laughs> We put it down, we put it down, and see. <laughs> Sit on it. <laughs> Sit on it. So that's what we'll be exploring together for the next three weeks, each of those legs. And we'll talk, uh, take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the homework and, and some of the other ways that will work with this. But I hope everybody understands that it's not, uh, you know, I'm not going to give you uh, hard and fast practices like sit for two hours. or I do that uh, a lot with the beginning classes just to, for them to just be able to feel the difference between one form of one view and another. But we have to back up here. Sometimes we go too fast, fall into the meditation without really backing up and seeing what, where our sight is, where our awareness is, how expansive it is, what we're looking at, how we're working in this life. And this is a backup talk. 
It says, okay, let's look, let's go back some. How are we addressing life here? How are we looking at things? You see, when the Buddha gave the Eightfold Path, he started with right understanding, what I'm calling view, right understanding. The next was right attitude, you see? What I call learning. And then there was a whole series of right action, which I call interest. So this isn't apart from Buddhism. It's just putting it, I think, in today's terminology, today's speech, so we can understand why those are essential for the next five uh, steps in the Eightfold Path. So that's what it's about. So we'll take a 10-minute break and meet back here. And we'll have a silent break, if you don't mind. Meet back here at 20 till.